Welcome to Peak Flow, where we explore how team human plays with purpose, breathwork and beyond. I'm Dr. Rob Williams, and with us today, all the way from Los Angeles, California, here via Zoom in our MRV TV studio, is Candace Young. Candace, welcome to the show. Thank you. Namaste. It's a pleasure to be here. Namaste, I should say. Sorry. Hey. Namaste. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for joining us at such an early hour. We're glad to have you with no us. Worries. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's jump right in. Um, there's so much that you and I can talk about. Um, you and I met for the very first time in the high mountains of uh, the Himalayas in Nepal around Mount Manasalu, which I think is the eighth largest peak in the world, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and we, we can kind of back into that in our work around trek relief. But first, let's talk about breath work uh, here at Peak Flow. How did you, Candace? how did you get interested in breath work? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, wasn't super interested in it before. It was just, you know, breathing like a normal human, not really thinking too much about it um, until uh, I took my first freediving course. And that was a long journey in itself coming too. Um, just to give a little background of myself, um, I studied marine biology. After graduating college, I worked a year in the diving industry as a scuba diving guide. And that kind of just put me in places where I was snorkeling all the time. I was in uh, Thailand and Philippines. So when I wasn't working, I would just kind of be snorkeling around. And at some point, somebody was like, hey, you could really increase your snorkeling skills if you took a free dive course. So that was always in the back of my mind. And I was curious. And then uh, one of my journeys took me to uh, an island and I decided to take a free diving course there. And that was just so like mind blowing to me. It felt like somebody was teaching me like monk Jedi tricks and I could like use the force and do things that I never thought was possible with the human body. And uh, it was just a two day beginners course I was in Bali at that time. And, uh, and I was just so blown away with like things I never thought I could do things that like you know, I thought that bodies had human limits, but actually they're way further than you think they are. Um, and the concepts they taught during the course were amazing. It'd be like, I remember one of the takeaways was like, the instructor's like, hey, when you are a runner and you're training for a race and you get tired when you're running, you don't stop running, you keep running. <laughs> and they're like, when you're holding your breath and you feel like you need to breathe, you don't just come up and breathe, you keep going. <laughs> keep holding your breath and I was like oh okay you could do that <laughs> um but yeah all of the breathing techniques the meditation that they teach you before your last breath hold that really um was a game changer and really allowed me to hold my breath way longer than I ever thought I could um so, so, you, so you're on Bali which is an island beautiful island and you're learning how to free dive I mean, that, that, that two-word phrase, free dive, for, for those of us listening or watching who don't know what that is, like, can you just describe what, what is free diving, like in I, a nutshell? Yeah, I, I like to uh, describe it to people as like advanced snorkeling <laughs> to, like, to like kind of put that reference in your mind. But basically, it's uh, diving, but without all of the scuba tank gear, equipment, all that stuff. You wear a wetsuit, um, some fins. They have specific free dive fins, which are super long. They're like the length of your leg, pretty much. Um, yeah, they're super cool know. looking, those, those, those fins. <laughs> they are really like, cool. Like, yeah, they really yeah. propel you very quickly, super, right? Yeah, super yeah. water dynamic. They give you the most um, like 
maximum output for the effort you put in because that's one of the concepts of free diving is like really minimizing the amount of energy or expense that you're doing for maximal output and that's the way you can hold your breath as long as you can and all of that so um but yeah they're just wearing wetsuit fin snorkel mask a weight belt so you can actually go down because you're buoyant with this wetsuit and um yeah basically holding your breath as long as you can so you can stay underwater as long as you can or go deep or you know go for whatever maybe personal best you might be going for that's one of the huge draws of of freediving for me in the beginning was just kind of like seeing how far I could push my body and test the human limits. Um, see if I can hold my breath longer next time or dive deeper next time. It's like a very like good, good sport for people who are self-competitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, for some humans who are listening or watching you here, they must be thinking this woman is insane. I mean, why would you ever do this? What, what, what are the bennies? Uh, <laughs> Well, um, it's funny you say bennies because it's better than scuba diving so you don't get the bends. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And the bends, yeah. right, which is what yeah. happens when you ascend too quickly and, and you, you get too much nitrogen in your in your bloodstream, right? Is that, am I getting that right? Right, right. Like if you ascend, uh, it's when you go scuba diving and you ascend too quickly and you've been breathing compressed on air underwater. Um, and so when you ascend, then all of that kind of like potentially can make an air bubble. So um, in some ways, um, it is way more freeing than scuba diving. Okay, you can't stay underwater as long, but I I think for me, what really turned me on to free diving after as much scuba diving as I did was I was just so much more free. It felt like I was a seal underwater and I could just like play and loop around and just like do whatever I want. And, you know, honestly, after the first course, I was like, I don't even need a tank anymore. <laughs> like I can hold my breath underwater and enjoy and like not be causing bubbles everywhere and scaring off fish and really just getting super like dynamic with the underwater world and not just like being this big floating, you know, machine that just blows bubbles. Yeah, and having done some snorkeling and diving myself, I'm remembering now just what a beautiful, contemplative, meditative state I find myself in when I'm underwater for any length of time. It's, you're right, it's, it opens, it's like a whole different world down there. It's very, yeah, yeah it's yeah, very, it's, it's very beautiful. powerful. Yeah, yeah. So, um, can, can you can you can you describe a little bit of the kind of the neurophysiological logistics of free diving? Like, how do you do it? Yeah, well, it's been a few years since my course, so I'll just try to like regurgitate a little bit of the summary of how I like to explain it. But um, basically, the concept is you only have one lung of air, and you want to make that lung of air last as long as possible. And if your heart's beating really, really fast, you're gonna go through that air really quick. So the idea is to calm your heartbeat down as slow as possible, almost like right before you go to sleep, like you're falling asleep, kind of like heartbeat. And um, that's when you that's when you take your last breath. And so to do that, you visualize you, your happy place, you uh, take, you know, there's different breathing patterns, but you could like, try doing like long, slow breaths, get yourself to a sleepy state as you're just like floating on the surface of the water, face down, snorkel in, and you're just like basically dead man float <laughs> face down. And you just breathe like really slow to the point of like, for like at least two minutes, you time yourself. Um, and then you get your heart rate as low as possible. 
then then you can hold your breath as long as possible too once you do that and through it even when you're holding your breath you're, you're continuing to visualize your happy place so even when your your abdomen is experiencing contractions which happens every once in a while like once you hit a certain point you're like you're like doing this like little internal hiccup um you visualize past those feelings of discomfort and you're like I enjoy this. <laughs> you gotta tell yourself you enjoy the feeling. And then that's how you keep yourself from stressing out and you can hold your breath even longer. Cause when you stress out then you get like tense and then that's when you like, yeah, you can't hold it, your breath as long. So you gotta relax through all the discomfort too. So you're training your mind to overcome that diaphragmatic impulse to wanna breathe when you feel your body is running out of air. Yeah. Is that, the, is that uh, fair? The impulse will happen regardless of the mind, mm. but it's more of like training your mind to be okay with it, with the uh, discomfort. And okay. so even during the course, they actually had us like, they'd have us do the breath hold and then hold through 10 contractions just so we could get used to the feeling. Mm. Wow. And everyone is now thinking, how long can this woman hold her breath for? <laughs> um, I think after the first course, it taught me that like, Hold it to three minutes, thirty minutes, three and three minutes and a half, and then after this, my advanced course, I got to like three minutes forty-five. But like, there are people who have held their breath to four, five minutes in the course too. So yeah, and isn't the world record some insane like seven? Am I making that up or it's? Some I feel like it's really ten or more, or something it? like that. Yeah. yeah, I should know. Um, I should know too. <laughs> yeah, well, and this would be a good plug for James Nestor's first book, um, a book called Deep which is really sort of the study of the science and art of free diving. He also wrote a great book more recently called Breath, which I, I drop probably every Peak Flow podcast because it's such an important book. But yeah, his book Deep is really quite, quite amazing. And he begins, he begins the book Deep by telling the story of going to a free diving competition, thinking it was ludicrous, and then witnessing these humans doing these amazing feats of diving and he is so excited about what he sees, he actually calls his mother that night to explain it to her, and she doesn't believe him. <laughs> so he's like, I had to write a book. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a great story. But so so talk about, so, so you learned how to free dive in Bali, and, and give us sort of a, take us on a tour of your free diving experiences since then. You've gotten into spearfishing, you're involved in competitions. Like, tell us about that. Yeah. Um... It like free diving was amazing. I remember the first course, I just like, I finished and I was like, this is where it's at. And it like completely reinvented my relationship with the ocean. Because um, before that, like I said, I was working in the diving industry. Uh, it kind of uh, was hard to work a hobby, but also get, you know, like turn that into a job because then the money and the hobby and then you're like doing things you don't really want to. So like, and then kind of ruining that relationship, like repetitive rinse and repeat clients and stuff like that. Um, and not really spending the time to just enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it. Um, and also, um, the more you dive repetitively, especially with scuba, and for me too, like I could feel the cold really getting to my body. And I was getting cold in like 20 minutes in like tropical waters. And it was like physically difficult to be working in that industry again um, or anymore. So that was, I was like losing my um, desire to have a relationship with the ocean. But then spear, uh, free diving, uh, because you're so dynamic in the water, you're not just like trying to stay still and conserve your air tank and all that stuff. You're actually like moving around and checking out things and going up to the surface. And so 
your body just stays warmer. And so then I was like, okay, this is how I can interact with the ocean and also be comfortable and also like not just be like, okay, these are the fish, but like this is also now my personal physical challenge that I'm adding to this. So it kind of like reinvented my relationship with the ocean, made me fall in love with diving all over again in a whole new way. And then the next step after that <laughs> was uh, then I became aware of spearfishing. I heard about this amazing woman named Kimmy Warner. <laughs> She's kind of a rock star over in Hawaii, um, basically like a master spearfisher, won world champions, I think. And um, yeah, she hunts and uh, she free dives doing it too. And um, so I heard about her. I was like, wow. And she does like podcasts and all that stuff. And was super inspired by what I heard. She's like, she she basically has a relationship with the food that she eats. And for me, growing up in LA, um, you know, I I only knew that food comes from supermarkets, and um, so it just it was very um, beautiful to hear that you can have a relationship with the ocean and to know that I actually had the skills to start to get into that. And so I always had this idea of like, hey, it'd be really cool to try out spearfishing one day. That's like a goal of mine. And then at some point, um, I met a friend of a friend here in LA that went spearfishing. And I was like, oh my gosh, take me. <laughs> and uh, then he was so nice. He took me out. And then I remember um, he had an extra gun for me. And we went out and I remember catching my first fish. And it was like the most, like, I was so surprised. I didn't actually think it would work. <laughs> and, and like, I just barely like I just aimed and I like just barely nicked him but somehow I got stuck and then he was like wriggling and I was like so shocked and so surprised I was like okay what, like what do I do with this now and my friend's like you gotta you gotta brain him <laughs> and so he, like I have a dive knife on my on my belt and then I had to like stab him and then sever the spinal cord and it was like honestly the hardest thing I was like oh my gosh I was like wriggling beautiful life in front of me I feel it's so much full it's so full of life and I had to like stab it but I was doing it too gently and I was just like I was like man I gotta be vicious about this but then finally I was able to figure it out and then I just was like filled with like all this adrenaline I'm like I'm floating in the middle of the water at this in the ocean at this point doing this and like I'm full of adrenaline I'm feeling bad about just taking like literally taking the life of something in my hands but at the same time like but this just happened and now I have food. And it was like, it was like this really beautiful moment of like, okay, wow, this is a relationship with an animal that I'm, I'm about to eat. I took its life and now I'm going to honor it so much more. So it was really this desire to start to actually have a relationship with the animals that I am consuming. And I never had that before. I never actually went out and caught any, my own meat or fish or anything that I've done. And so in that way, I felt like, this really, really precious connection to, to, to life in that way. And then I was like, okay, I was like, Mr. Fish, I'm going to, it was a half moon. <laughs> and I was like, Mr. Half Moon, I'm going to remember you forever. I'm going to make you so delicious. I'm going to honor you so much. And um, yeah, it's really, really allowed me to consume any kind of life a lot more um, with reverence because yeah, life is precious, especially when you have to take it from your, from, from its body yourself mm. and um mm. yeah and that's led me into a whole another journey with food and and uh, i can go into that later but I'll, I'll let you ask another question well what a powerful story thank you for sharing that how how long ago was that that you had that first i think that was december yeah. 2019 yeah december so not so not that long ago a couple of years ago yeah mm -hmm. and interesting that you used the word hunt 
to describe spearfishing. I, I don't know that many people would make that association. You know, here we are in Vermont where we do a lot of hunting of deer and, you know, other, other game animals that we, you know, kill and eat. Uh, and there is, there is a, when done properly, there is a really important spiritual dimension to that. Reverence for the animal and uh, gratitude for uh, it, it, it giving its life for us, you know, for nourishment. Um, but yeah, I hadn't thought of that with in the oceanic world, but there we are. Um, just as an aside, but I think it's important, can you describe the spear gun? Because the, the <laughs> word gun is not quite the right, I mean, it's called a spear gun, I guess, but, but it's kind of an interesting tool. And I, I've used them myself. Can you just describe that for us? Yeah, yeah. So if someone's not familiar with what it looks like, it looks, so I've got a 110 centimeter spear gun, which looks like uh, about this long, about the length of my arms, like a big hug, <laughs> you know, hug someone big. Um, and it looks like a big rifle, but with a fishing reel near the handle and also big rubber bands at the tip that you kind of load on like a crossbow. And um, so, yeah, mix of rifle slash crossbow slash fishing reel. And then the hook itself. What's it's actually like a metal rod and then at the tip at the tip of the rod it's like pointy and then at the base of the rod it's got like a threaded shaft that hooks onto your like float line or your your gun or something like that yeah and and you essentially kind of load it up with the rubber bands like a crossbow and then you release it is it a trigger that activates trigger. it okay. trigger, yeah yeah and don't the more traditional ones don't they don't they have um a different loading mechanism? Yeah, there's a pole spear as well. That's like a Hawaiian sling. Yeah. Um, and it's just in one hand, one long spear, and then you just kind of have like one little wrist rubber band and you kind of like stretch it back and right. then you just kind of aim with one hand and release. And, and what's that called? A pole spear. A pole spear. Yeah, that's what I've used in Hawaii actually. And I, I couldn't remember what it was called. It's been a while, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there you are in the water. You brained your first fish. Um, <laughs> you bring it home. And I should say, I have been in L.A. at your place, and I've eaten some fish you've caught. And it, it's so magical. You're right. It's so, it's so great. Uh, it's so powerful. Um, and in that moment of taking your first Mr. Fish and taking Mr. Fish's life, did you have sort of an epiphany like, this is what I want to do? Or was it sort of more gradual than that? It was definitely super special to be able to finally have a relationship with the food uh, that I'm eating, you know, and like, I'm sure people who maybe garden and, you know, cultivate their own foods that way. That's, that's a beautiful relationship as well. Um, this one was very, I felt sacred because of that act of taking the life and like, honestly, literally severing the spinal cord and just feeling it not flopping anymore. Going from like live to like not flopping, I'm like, okay, must honor this fish <laughs> and do a really good job cooking it and make it really tasty. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to so. we'll have to compare fish recipes offline. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, and then from spearfishing, you and freediving, you you are a bit competitive for all of your 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 charismatic charismatic charm. Um, you do have sort of a. a you do have sort of a, uh, I know you well enough to say this, Candace, I think on air, you have a bit of a competitive streak. How did, how did you get, how did you get into that competing in the free dive space? Like what, how'd that come about? Okay. <laughs> I would say I'm more like willing to be self-competitive. I like to do things like really for my own personal okay, fair best. Enough, fair but, enough. Then, 
just to see how I do. And like, I'm constantly trying to do better for myself. But like, um, I entered into these like spearfishing competitions because it's honestly like the social gatherings uh, in the spearfishing community. It's like, I think the first one that I went to, it was just like a camp out hosted by one of the clubs and like, you know, pay annual dues. And then like they host you for the weekend at like a state campground and then they have like a friendly tournament and lots of stuff. And so it's a, it's a social gathering um, and it's a way that the community gathers. So like, it's not that I wanted to compete with other people. I was just kind of like, I'm just here. <laughs> I hope we can learn from y'all. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so when it's, when I say I'm going to tournaments, like I'm really just going to be social. <laughs> yeah, it's like a party. But, uh, yeah. I guess there are records and stuff like that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how, how do you, how do you, what, what does a competition look like in the free diving world? Like what do you, what do you, mm. what are you measured on? Yeah. So every competition will have different like um, rules. Sometimes it's like a, they call it a three fish limit. Sometimes it could be like a 10 fish limit. Sometimes it's like a best of each category or like that kind of thing. Sometimes it's teams. Um, so every different competition has like, it's different things. Sometimes you just are shore diving. Sometimes boats are allowed. Um, sometimes only kayaks, you know, non-motorized boats are allowed. So, um, so yeah, there's just different ways of competing. And then, um, yeah, I think they just make it fun for people to gather. And cause there is, it's a very male dominated sport. So I think there is a lot of like, you know, like ego, like, <laughs> Like, hey, who has the biggest fish? Kind of <laughs> so, like, you know what they so say I, about the size of a man's fish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a lot of testosterone. Yeah, but also like chill too. I mean, I don't know. It's the, mm. I think every every community has their different vibes. So um, this is like a fishy hunter, fisherman. I love it. Yeah. Ever vibe. Well, and let's 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 agree that I think women have egos too. Um, yes, I, I would say. <laughs> Has some degree of ego. Well, and I know I know you're a, you're a modest human, Candice, but you've won a few of these, right? I've won one, yeah. And so, tell us about that. Like, what that looked like. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, that was my second competition. It was I was so lucky to have um, been brought to. It was like a club dive. They just call it club dives, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's a competition, I guess. Um, and that one was in San Diego. And my friend was kind enough to um, let me borrow a kayak. So there were three of us budding up together. We all went out in kayaks out beyond San Diego coastline. It was like the furthest out from the land from land that I've ever gone free diving. Um, and it was the deepest waters I've ever been in. But the people I was with, they're like really good. And I felt very lucky to be diving with them. And like how so, deep? Do you know? Um, so I was pushing myself and I had never gone that deep before, but I hit the bottom when I was with them. And that was like 21 meters. Whoa, yeah, which so is like, like 60, feet. 69, so almost, wow, almost 70 feet. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah, that's that's where I was diving. And then, uh, and yeah, um, so I felt very comfortable with them because uh, they were really good. And I knew that I could push myself around them. Um, so they were diving hard, I was diving hard. And then one of the guys was like, hey, big fish over here. And so I was just, I was just proud of myself to be hanging with them. And also like that I had like hit the bottom and I was like doing, you know, hitting new records for myself on that club dive. I wasn't trying to win or anything. I was just, just hanging out. And then, and then, uh, and then, so I dropped down and I saw the fish that he was talking about. 
and it was the biggest fish I had ever seen so far in my freediving period that, at that time. And then I remember just being like, okay, like, don't fuck this up. <laughs> and, like, and I just like sank. I had to be like super calm and like, yeah. I mean, the, all the freediving principles, of, like, don't freak out, be super calculated with each movement, like, um, slow movements, super calm. And I remember just like taking a knee on the ground, lining my, my gun up. And then the fish, it was just like this huge monster. And it was just in front of me, just like two or three feet away. And I was just like gently loping back and forth. And it like um, lined itself up for on my on me. And then I just took my shot. And like, luckily, it was a stone shot to the head. And then I remember that thinking like, okay, good, because I don't have time to wrestle him. And he was just like, he was just like, he, it was one of those shots where it's very rare for me, at least to get a stone shot. And um because usually I get like mid body or something like that. And then they like take off and they go under a rock and you have to like go find it. But I was like so deep, I didn't have time to deal with that stuff. But luckily I shot him and it was like one of those shots where it was, it was perfect. And he just went still like, 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 like a board. And I was like, okay. So I just like went over, grabbed him and then started kicking my way to the surface. Um, but it was like a really long way to go. And it was a very calculated dive going down. I didn't expect to see a fish and shoot him. And so with the breath hold that I had, like I didn't realize how much of a drag that fish would be because it was so big. And so me going up took more energy than me going down. And I was already like, mm. you know, pushing my limits at that point. Wow. And I remember kicking with this huge thing causing water drag as I'm like still holding my breath super low down. And then I was like, oh, there's a long way to go. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm like really trying my best to not like, freak out underwater but anyway I reached the I reached the top I break the surface I'm like going through all this kelp sunlight's starting to like become more bright and coming through the, the kelp leaves and stuff and then I remember breaking the surface and uh yeah um had a moment where like I had samba that's what they call it and it's like when you lose like right before you lose consciousness mm. and uh it was very scary um that's kind I of never had that that's kind of lights in the eyes stuff yeah, like the sensation. I remember I was like, in the last like 10 feet to the surface, I was like, oh, I'm redlining. And then I broke the surface. But in that moment, it felt like all of the um, all of the karma of all the fish I had ever shot entered into me and I became the fish at the end of my spear. And I just started I felt like I was flopping like a fish. I had turned into the flopping fish. Mm. And it was like two seconds of like, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then like, then all of a sudden, like everything came to, I was at the surface. My buddies were there congratulating me. Like, ah, oh, you got a fish, you got the fish. And then I was like, yeah, I got the fish. <laughs> and I'm like, I just remember like swimming in my kayak, throwing the fish in the kayak. It was so big. It like filled the whole width of the kayak. And then I got in the kayak and then was just like, shaking i was like what just happened mm. and my I, I described it to my buddies and like oh it sounds like samba you were really close to blacking out and i was like oh, yeah definitely felt like that i was really close and um so um yeah so my buddies continued diving they they we had some like some tea and the cop and like snacks and stuff and i just chilled and like did this shallow diving after that i was like kind of done with i was done with uh, yeah. deep diving after that experience yeah. but then when we got back to shore like an hour and a half later for a weigh-in um i found out i won with that fish <laughs> and then so like i was just like 
filled with so many emotions from that weekend. I was like so many first personal best, like deepest dive, biggest fish, won the competition, like first time kayaking in San Diego and or even kayaking and spearfishing, but then almost blacked out underwater. And then just was like, I, I was just filled with so many emotions that it was really difficult for me to really process what happened. And I was like, congratulations, Candace, you won. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> so so it was it was a very interesting win for me. And and honestly, I had like PTSD for like a while from having that experience. And before that, I was so gung-ho about like spearfishing. I was going like twice, three times a week. And it's like an hour drive for me at least mm, um, to mm, get to the ocean. Mm, yeah. um, but after that, it took me like two weeks to get back in the water. And then I was really spacing out my dives because I was like super eager to get back. And I was still, I don't push myself anymore. <laughs> So yes, I do go to competitions, but it's just still just to be social. And I definitely don't push myself anymore because I know my limits now. So. Wow. I remember seeing the photo on Instagram of you with that fish and thinking there's a story there. And <laughs> this is this God, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Wow. That, that's remarkable. So, so you're not, you're not, um, you're not, free diving and spearfishing quite as much these days as you were before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just having that PTSD moment, you know, like, or experience or even still, I, I don't push, you know, when I get those contractions these days, I'm just like, nah, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm going to breathe now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because what I've learned is that I can push myself to, to quite extremes. And um, I, you know, during the free diving course, the beginner's course, I did, push myself to black out in the pool. Um, and then having this experience later, I like almost got Samba. Luckily the instructor is, is all in a safe setting. Um, mm. And it does happen every once in a while in the freediving course. And that's why they encourage like buddies and really safetying mm. and watching each other and all that stuff. Um, um, and obviously I was pushing myself in a controlled setting. So that was um, good that the instructor was there. And he's like, he was like, okay. And that was a blackout. So just know for you like this, you should probably only do this for one minute or something like, you know, like certain breathe ups or something like that. Um, and then, so having this happen and recognizing that it happened to, like I actually blacked out in the course, I was like, okay, this is really real for me and I should not push myself. Mm. And so ever since then, like, you know, I, I say, well, like I dive like two thirds of what I used to dive just because there's no need to push myself. And there are so many things in life that I love to do and I don't need to prove anything to myself and I want to continue doing all the things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I like being alive. You know, I like being alive. Yeah. It's good to be alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, yeah. Before we move on, do you have any idea how many minutes that whole experience was catching that fish? I think that dive was like a minute and a half. Wow, that whole thing went, so you went all the way down to 70 feet, shot the fish, came all the way up in a minute and a half? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I don't remember that being more than an average dive for me. Okay. Yeah, I was, that question was in the back of my mind. That's an amazing story. Well, so back to breath work. So you're, uh, you also are an acro yogi. Yeah. And and a, a trekker and a sort of mountaineer. And, and I'm curious how you use breath work in those two arenas. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, well, I, I for acro yoga, I think that and you better describe <laughs> what that is. 
<laughs> oh, acro yoga, sure. Um, okay, so imagine ac partner acrobatics. You can think of like the Chinese and Russian like amazing acrobats that we might see in Cirque du Soleil. And then there's another sect called like acro yoga, which is kind of more popularized in the next, last decade or so, or two maybe. Um, but it's basically where the base, the person on the bottom, is uh, laying on their on their back with their legs in the air. And then, so it's almost like a halves, like, like a laying down acrobatics where, you know, the flyer is on their feet most for most of it. So that's acro yoga, which is a nice, like segue into learning acrobatics and all that stuff where before it was like really difficult to just get into acrobatics. Like who goes straight into acrobatics except for like, like circus people. Um, so for people who like for myself, I had a gymnastics background from my younger age um then it was a nice way to like you know bridge different practices into something and then segue in so acro yoga led me into the world of acrobatics and standing acro and dance acro and all that stuff um but that is one of the sects of acrobatics but as related to breath um yeah i would say in that one it's a pretty it, it, breath is used more for communication i would say in um, the partner timing of things like for example in standing acro if I was doing something with a partner, then, you know, we focus and then with the breath, then we can swoop into a thing together. Um, a move, so like a joint move. Yeah. Yes, a move. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nice. Yeah, we don't have acro yogi in Vermont. Or if we do, I'm certainly not aware of it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure th I'm sure there might be like, a few. <laughs> yeah, so, there. yeah, yeah, for our Vermonters yeah, in the them. audience, they're like, what is she talking about? Um, <laughs> I, I love it. And um, and what about breath work at elevation? And maybe um, tell us a bit about breath work. But but also, I think this is a good segue to your founding of Trek Trek Relief uh, website, trekrelief.org, um, which is an organization um, you founded, and I was lucky enough to be along for the ride. How do you how do you how do you see breath work at altitude? Yeah, that's actually super useful at altitude. Um, <clears throat> for the, uh, those of you who haven't been at altitude before, it's like you just get so tired <laughs> so easily, like the same like path or distance or whatever that would have been super easy, like lower elevation would be just so exhausting. And you're like, uh, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> but um, but really what I've learned and I've just fallen in love with trekking, it was like uh in my most of my 20s I spent a lot of my time traveling I fell in love with the Himalayas when I went there the first time and that's how I met Rob I was like <laughs> deep in the middle of my love of Nepal and the Himalayas and on like my I think sixth trek through the Himalayas <laughs> maybe and um and you know there over there is also some element of self-competitiveness of like wanting to just see how much higher I could go and how my body responds to altitude every time I expose myself to it again. And like seeing like, hey, at 4,000 meters, I am doing, I'm kicking ass. <laughs> and last time I was here, like two weeks ago, I was struggling. So it was just like, it, like that feeling of like, whoa, I wonder how much higher I, higher I can go. And I could start to see why mountaineers want to just keep climbing higher and higher. Cause it's like this constant desire to see how much further and how much better your body can adapt to. Um, similar to the free diving and all that stuff. So I definitely noticed some parallels in my <laughs> mentality there. But um, um, yeah, uh, but yeah, for breath, it definitely like, you know, when you're dealing with altitude, um, really 
I would just match my, my steps to my heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Really feeling, because like when you're hiking or even at altitude, you just notice your heartbeat, heart's beating faster, especially if you're like climbing a hill or a mountain or something like that. Um, but just noticing, hey, you know, I could take a step to make sure my heartbeat doesn't get too high. And then, um, and then really just match the speed to my heartbeat. And then also that heartbeat is also in conjunction with your breath, like take low, slow, small stre- steps and also deep, long breaths. And so in that way, then like really making sure your, your rate, your body rate never gets too high or stressed or anything like that. And just taking little baby steps mm. at altitude, higher and higher. Yeah, syncing up the breathing with the steps and the heart rate is, especially going up, um, yeah, it's so powerful. What about nasal breathing versus mouth breathing? Is that something that you were aware of or have become aware of in your trekking? I think I didn't quite uh, apply any of those principles when I was there, but I'm sure maybe Wim Hof has uh, some, some principles. You sent me a uh, link, which I meant to watch last night, but we never got around to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, to, no, yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Patrick McCohen in Ireland talks about intermittent hypercapnic hypoxic training, which is essentially at sea level bringing the mountain to you through these these breathwork protocols. And they're, I've been experimenting with them myself for a while now. They're incredibly powerful. Um, and I'm excited actually to go back to the Himalayas and go chase yaks uh, way up high and actually apply these, apply these new breathwork principles I've been playing with. Cause I, I for obvious reasons, haven't been, haven't been back to Nepal in, in, in a year or two. So we'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to make that happen. Um, well, last question, and I, it wouldn't be a show, um, wouldn't be a peak flow show with Candice Young if we didn't say a few words about Trek Relief. Um, so maybe, maybe let's make that the last question. Like, what, what have you been up to with this organization, trekrelief.org? What's, what's going on? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, and I love that you asked it because you were there with me. Yeah. When we started. <laughs> um, we were way up high. Yeah. Ooh, we were up high. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize it in, uh, succinctly. But um, but yeah, I think my second time in Nepal, I got involved with disaster relief. It was after the earthquake that happened in 2015, which really, really destroyed the nation and left so many buildings rubbled and all that stuff. Um, so by then I had um, volunteered for a nonprofit called All Hands. Um, rebuilding 50 homes and toilets um, in the epicenter of the earthquake. Uh, I actually was their project coordinator. Um, and then after that project finished, then I went trekking because I loved it so much. And uh, I had three treks lined up for myself over the course of two months. One of them I called my earth the earthquake trek because it was in the epicenter as well in the Himalayas. And when I went there, I saw so much destruction, way more than the three months that I had uh, just spent um, just because it was so remote that nobody was able to help them. And they were like uh, a year after the earthquake and still like just, it was just so, so devastating. It looked like a bomb had just gone off and they were still picking through all the rubble. There were menus, you know, from their old dining, just like still stuck under rocks. And um, and yeah, like people were coming up to my, me and my trekking partner, just asking us to please stay the night, please share the business. and. Um, actually they were advising us not to go to that place because they were saying it's too dangerous. There's still, there's no lodges standing, but 
we were encouraged by, I was, I saw um, like a, a pair of truckers come down from the area and they said that it was possible. You just had to like ask around to see what was still standing. And so even though we wasn't advised to go at that time, I still wanted to go. So went and then realized, you know, it is possible to do this trek and they really do need tourism to come and, uh, and just, just help rebuild and bring money in and bring like hope that you can, there is still going to be business coming and people should rebuild their lives. And so, um, so after I got back to the internet, um, I just posted on like my social media, like, hey, if anyone wants a vacation, please come here. Like they could really use your business. And um, and yeah, they've really been destroyed. They got like wiped out by a huge avalanche of like ice and rocks and they just buried like 400 people underneath. Yeah, and like we yes. walk- it took like 40 minutes to walk across this huge expanse of just a huge, like felt like a frozen ocean of like gigantic boulders and there was like buildings and people and all that stuff. Yeah, it reminded me of the, like the lava flows that you see in Hawaii, except it was like mud and ice and rocks and yeah, it's just completely devastated the, yeah, and, and very sort of famous, you know, because of the global news coverage of, of yeah. that valley, but in any case, yeah. Yeah. And so after that, I had like another month and a half of trekking and it was just so much like time to reflect about like, how moved I felt about what I'd seen there. Like it was the most destruction I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and all the connections that I had made in the nonprofit world and this desire to like wanna do something to help. And then started having this idea of like, oh, maybe I can do a fundraiser to help, you know, that valley is called Long Tongue Valley. Um, and then, so I was kind of bouncing that idea off with my trekking partner at the time. And she's like, hey, you know, like you should like, I think there's somebody in the lodge you might want to talk to. And it, she was talking about you. <laughs> and then so I brought it up with you and you're like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. By the way, I'm a professor and I teach crowdfunding and entrepreneurship. And like, you just told me, and then we just walked in the same direction for seven days and we just like bounced ideas off each other. And you just basically told me, gave me a whole crash course of your semester. <laughs> and, and then like, we came up with the name Trek Relief for it together. You challenged me to, at first I was thinking I'd raise like, $10,000 and you're like, no, nah, I think you should go for more. And then like, so together you challenged me to raise $50,000. And, uh, and, and yeah, I remember getting back to internet after that total was like five months in Nepal, finally getting back to internet and being like, so scared to commit to all the ideas that we had just gone through. And I know I had my notebook, I was taking all those notes that you gave me. I mean, nobody in front of me, I was like, I have all the tools, all the connections, all the ideas that I think will work. Um, but this is really scary to commit to this because I was like setting aside a whole year to raise $50,000 and just try to book, you know, people and just posting online on social media, like, Hey, come to this place. They could use your money, rebuild. Um, and yeah, launched the fundraiser. And then eight months later, I raised $50,000. Um, and it was just so moved by the response, people wanting to come and people's feedback, like, yeah, it's like, I totally get why you did this. This was so life-changing. We like, how can you help? And so that kind of like um, provided the encouragement to take this even further. So uh, Rob, I called you and I was like, hey, Rob, I think we can take this model and apply it to any cause anywhere. And I would like to make this like a legal entity. So we talked about it and we just realized that going the nonprofit route made sense. And so we founded a nonprofit. And so now we've done like four different projects in three different countries, expanded to uh, to Mongolia after that. Uh, we did a project in Everest Base Camp as well for medical stuff. And then we've also now expanded to Patagonia, um, Chile. So 
um, doing a variety of different projects for environmentalism. Uh, we were helping install infrastructure in the National Park in Mongolia, doing different projects in Patagonia as well. So it's been really beautiful. And our hashtag is travel with purpose. It's really inviting people to come on a really awesome trek, like through the Himalayas, um, through Patagonia, just on, on an adventure, um, but also give back to the communities that we're visiting as well. And so it's really empowering the individual traveler to be able to give back and not only give back, but also have the inspiration and the tools to create your own change too. So that was what um, Sarah did. She was our very first trekker and now she's created the program in Patagonia as well. So really just creating the platform for people to make the changes that they wanna see in the world. Wow, yeah, that, that's beautifully said. So last question for you, and this has been such a wonderful conversation, Candace. What do you see ahead for you personally and, and maybe also for Trek Relief? Looking, looking, I would consider you a visionary. What, what, what's, what, what's in your line of vision? Yeah, um, I see Trek Relief being this beautiful platform that uh, can continue to grow as for me, it's a lifetime project. Hmm. You know, even though I go through my moments of burnout, I think everyone who has started their own business or gone the entrepreneurial route has had their roller coaster rides of ups and downs and all of that. And uh, even in my moments of burnout, I'm like, you know what? This is so me, though. <laughs> I will always come back to this. I, I love travel. Yeah, yeah. I love travel with purpose. I love mm. adventure. And so even in those moments where, like, I like just want to, you know, step away for a moment. But in the end, I know I always come back because this is just me. It's, it's a combination of all my passions, um, what I love doing, what I love being in the world. And so I will continue to do this. And um, I love also um, providing opportunities too, to people who also mm. want to do something like this. And maybe they just need to be shown an example. So coming on the trips or like learning how we scout things and how do we do those things and seeing other people also taking that model as well. It's something really beautiful and I love um, um, helping people on that, on that journey if they want to do that themselves. Um, yeah. yeah, so I see that, I see it growing. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, who has the time and space and wants to create this amazing opportunity too for themselves and also for others. Um, because I think it's very inspiring to see, or it's, it's very um, wonderful if someone has time and space to do that, but also it's super, amazing to be able to create something of your own and see it grow and take off. Mm, yes, breath like, by yeah. breath, breath by breath and moment by moment, yeah. Um, well, Candace, thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to talk with us at Peak Flow. Um, let me just do a quick sign off. You've been listening to Peak Flow, the show where we explore how team human plays with purpose, breath work, and beyond. We've been talking with Candice Young today. She is the founder of trekrelief.org, a free diver, a spear fisher woman, an acro yogi, um, a traveler, an adventurer, a visionary, and a proud member of Team Human. Um, Candice, thank you so much. Uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Yeah, and looking forward to uh, more adventures again soon. Very soon. Be well. We'll see you outside.
so I was pushing myself and I had never gone that deep before, but I hit the bottom when I was with them. And that was like 21 meters. Whoa. Yeah, so which is like, like 60, feet. 69. So almost, wow. Almost 70 feet. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. That's, that's where I was diving. And then, uh, and yeah. Um, so I felt very comfortable with them because uh, they were really good. And I knew that I could push myself around them. Um, so they were diving hard. I was diving hard. And then one of the guys was like, Hey, big fish over here. And then so I was just, I was just proud of myself to be hanging with them. And also like that I had like hit the bottom and I was like doing, you know, hitting new records for myself on that club dive. I wasn't trying to win or anything. I was just, just hanging out. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then, so I dropped down and I saw the fish that he was talking about and it was the biggest fish I had ever seen so far in my free diving period that at that time and then I remember just being like okay like don't fuck this up <laughs> and, like, and I just like sank I had to be like super calm and like yeah. I mean the, all the free diving principles like don't freak out be super calculated with each movement and, like um slow movements super calm and I remember just like taking a knee on the ground lining my my gun up and then the fish, it was just like this huge monster. And it was just in front of me, just literally like two or three feet away. And I was just like gently loping back and forth. And it like um, lined itself up for on my on me. And then I just took my shot. And like, luckily it was a stone shot to the head. And then I remember that thinking like, okay, good. Cause I don't have time to wrestle him. And he was just like, he was just like, he, it was one of those shots where it's very rare for me at least to get a stone shot. And um Cause usually I get like mid body or something like that. And then they like take off and they go under a rock and you have to like go find it. But I was like so deep. I didn't have time to deal with that stuff, but luckily I shot him and it was like one of those shots where it was, it was perfect. And he just went still like, 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 like a board. And I was like, okay. So I just like went over, grabbed him and then started kicking my way to the surface. Um, but it was like a really long way to go. And it was a very calculated dive going down. I didn't expect to see a fish and shoot him and so with the breath hold that I had like I didn't realize how much of a drag that fish would be because it was so big and so me going up took more energy than me going down and I was already like mm. you know pushing my limits at that point wow. and I remember kicking with this huge thing causing water drag as I'm like still holding my breath super low down and then I was like oh there's a long way to go <laughs> and I'm like you know I'm like really trying my best to not like freak out underwater but anyway wow. I reached the I reached the top I break the surface I'm like going through all this kelp sunlight's starting to like become more bright and coming through the, the kelp leaves and stuff and then I remember breaking the surface and uh yeah um had a moment where like I had samba that's what they called it it's like when you lose like right before you lose consciousness mm. and uh it was very scary um that's kind, I of, never had that that's kind of lights in the eyes stuff yeah, like the sensation. I remember I was like, in the last like 10 feet to the surface, I was like, oh, I'm redlining. And then I broke the surface. But in that moment, it felt like all of the um, all of the karma of all the fish I had ever shot entered into me. And I became the fish at the end of my spear. And I just started I felt like I was flopping like a fish. I had turned into the flopping fish. Mm. And it was like two seconds of like, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then like, then all of a sudden, like everything came to, I was at the surface. My buddies were there congratulating me. Like, 
ah, you got a fish, you got the fish. And then I was like, yeah, I got the fish. And I'm like, I just remember like sitting in my kayak, throwing the fish in the kayak. It was so big. It like filled the whole width of the kayak. And then I got in the kayak and then was just like shaking. I was like, what just happened? Mm. And my, I, I described it to my buddies and like, oh, it sounds like Samba. You were really close to blacking out. And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely felt like that. I was really close. And um, so, um. Yeah, so my buddies continued diving. They, they, we had some like some tea and the cop and like snacks and stuff. And I just chilled and like did this shallow diving after that. I was like kind of done with, I was done with uh, yeah. deep diving after that experience. Yeah. But then when we got back to shore, like an hour and a half later for a weigh in, um, I found out I won with that fish. <laughs> and then so like I was just like filled with so many emotions from that weekend. I was like so many first personal best, like deepest dive, biggest fish, won the competition, like first time kayaking in San Diego and or even kayaking and spearfishing, but then almost blacked out underwater. And then just was like, I, I was just filled with so many emotions that it was really difficult for me to really process what happened. And everyone's like, congratulations, Candace, you won. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so so it was it was a very interesting win for me and and honestly i had like ptsd for like uh, a while from having that experience and before that i was so gung-ho about like spearfishing i was going like twice three times a week and it's like an hour drive for me at least um mm. to get to the ocean mm. yeah. um but after that it took me like two weeks to get back in the water and then i was really spacing out my dives because i was like super eager to get back and i was still i don't push myself anymore <laughs> So yes, I do go to competitions, but it's just still just to be social. And I definitely don't push myself anymore because I know my limits now. So. Wow. I remember seeing the photo on Instagram of you with that fish and thinking there's a story there. And <laughs> this is this. God, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Wow. That, that's remarkable. 